when harmony has developed to a sudden high point, change will occur which will bring with it entirely different and unexpected things. Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. This episode is the first in a series of European composers that started a change in music, paving the way for avant-garde and disruptive sounds from the classical minimalist genre to punk and rock and roll that we hear today. We'll start with Arnold Schoenberg, an Austrian composer who mapped out the coming modernist era. Schoenberg created new methods of musical composition involving atonality, serialism, and the twelve-tone row. His name is inextricably linked with the Second Viennese School. He was also one of the most influential teachers of the 20th century with Anton Webern and Alan Berg as two of his most famous pupils. Schoenberg's time represented the changing environment in Europe in the early 1900s when World War I was about to wreak havoc. Austrian and German music ruled in terms of classical music composition, but younger Austrian and German composers were fed up with the melodies of Beethoven, what they called elite tonal music. They wanted a change. They wanted something fresh and new and of their time, specifically modern music. Alex Ross stated that the 20th century began with the mystique of revolution, with the mind-bending harmonies and earth-shaking rhythms of Schoenberg. Schoenberg was born in 1874 and raised in a predominantly Jewish section of Vienna. Schoenberg played cello and viola. As early as nine years old, Schoenberg composed a piece for two violins for his cousin and teacher. When he was 16, his father passed away and he joined the orchestra, playing cello in the polyhymnia in 1891. Before this, Schoenberg admitted that he was imitating music of what he would see being played in public parks, like military bands. He was a Brahms fan until he discovered Wagner, but Schoenberg was too romantic for these composers. Schoenberg maintained a close friendship with the conductor of the Polyhymna Orchestra and longtime teacher Alexander Zemlinsky. Schoenberg himself had been the conductor of the Metal Worker Choir in Stockerau and started writing his own music when he was 20. His piece written in 1899 called Transfigured Night was based on the poem by Richard Dimmel of the same name. You're hearing it now. Its harmonies outraged conservative program committees and was rejected by the public.
he was probably, I think too, maybe one of the greatest uh, theorists of tonal music of the, of the 20th century. My name is Alex Carpenter. I'm an associate professor of music at the University of Alberta. The provocativeness of some of his uh, of some of his music sort of pushes that that fact aside. But he had um, yeah he taught Alban Berg and Anton Webern in the early part of the the century, and Berg and Webern went on to become you know, major composers of the century. Schoenberg moved to Berlin in 1901 to better his financial situation. German composer Richard Strauss gave him a job as a composition teacher at the Stern Conservatory. In 1903, Schoenberg became acquainted with Gustav Mahler, his greatest supporter and mentor. Mahler found Schoenberg's music mesmerizing and maddening at the same time. At a time when many opposed young Schoenberg's work, he was encouraged by the Mahlers and many other composers in the highest musical circles. Schoenberg married Matilda Zemlinski, the sister of his mentor and composer Alexander Zemlinski, although she cheated on Schoenberg with his friend and painter Richard Gerson. The emotional turmoil made him unstable and depressed, but it informed much of his work. He broke with the traditional music of the past, including in his second quartet that contains fragments of a folk song that cries, All is Lost. He is very much a man who was not able to separate himself, his personal life, his, his emotional constellation. It could not be separated from his artistic output. So certainly through this period where he's writing very expressionistic, atonal, very hard to listen to, you know, harshly dissonant music, it's, it's all largely, almost every piece, every piece with text is about uh, a man who's betrayed by a woman. So he says on the one hand, oh, my music, you know, don't look for, don't look for these extra musical meanings. And on the other hand, every piece is just destroyed love, betrayed love, damaged love. So that's there for sure. Schoenberg dissolved tonality, and the concept of the chord melted miserably into a matrix of intervals. The process of transcending tonality can be observed in the beginning of the last movement of his second string quartet. This work was innovative in another way. It was the first string quartet to include a vocal part. The opening words of the finale, I feel air from another planet, by the poet Stefan George, have often been symbolically interpreted in the light of Schoenberg's breakthrough to a new world of sound. drafted into the army in the, in the First World War. Uh, he didn't serve for very long, but when he was drafted and I think showed up sort of for the first roll call, there's a, a funny story about the sergeant taking the attendance of, of these draftees and coming to Schoenberg's name and saying, Schoenberg, are you that guy who writes all of that, 
all of that terrible modern music. Schoenberg said something to the effect of, um, I'm sorry to say that I am. I must report that no one wanted to do it. Someone had to do it, so I did it. Which kind of implies that he, uh, that, that it was a, a historical inevitability. Somebody, the, the way that music was going, the trajectory of the tonal system was that it would, it would fall apart. It was no longer doing what it was uh, supposed to be doing. Tonality became less important. On February 19, 1909, Schoenberg finished the first of three piano pieces that constituted his Opus 11, the first composition ever to dispense completely with tonal means of organization. Such pieces in which no one tonal center exists and in which any harmonic or melodic combination of tones may be sounded without restrictions of any kind are usually called atonal. Atonal instrumental compositions are usually pretty short. In longer vocal compositions, the text serves as a means of unification. Schoenberg's monodrama, A Vartung, Opus 17, 1924, a stage work for soprano and orchestra, which you hear now. It was a very successful production. It ended up touring, it toured all over the world, and it won a ton of awards. But it, it, was, it was essentially a, a Freudian reading, right? So it's, it's a monodrama. You only have one singing character, and it's a woman who, who may or may not be wandering in, in the woods that's it's either the real woods or she's wandering in her own unconscious space. It's a very sort of fragmentary narrative. There's relatively little to hold on to in the text. She seems to be sort of exploring her own personal trauma. She may have murdered her own lover for a perceived infidelity. It's just a, a musical documentation of, of a kind of trauma. So that's one way to interpret it. It has all sorts of gestures that, even though they're atonal, they're, you know, they're operatic. So he's contradictory, I guess, in that way, that he's, he's making music that is you know, radical on the one hand, and the, on the other hand, you only need to sort of squint at it a little bit, and you can see how deeply rooted in the past it really is. Other important atonal compositions of his include five orchestral pieces, Opus 16 in 1909, Peral Lunaire, Opus 21, was 21 recitations with chamber accompaniment. The Hand of Fate, Opus 18 in 1924, is drama with music, and the unfinished oratorio, Jacob's Ladder, he began writing in 1917. The second Viennese school was the group of composers that was comprised of Arnold Schoenberg and his students in early 20th century Vienna, between 1903 and 1925. Their music started out as late romantic tonality, and later, following Schoenberg's own evolution, atonality took over, and later still, Schoenberg's serial 12-tone technique Serialism is a post-tonal technique in musical composition in which a pattern repeats over and over for a long portion of the composition. Schoenberg's textbooks also reveal that the second Viennese school spawned not from the development of his serial method, but rather from the influence of his creative example. I mean, he called himself a, a conservative revolutionary, um, which is a paradox, right? That people, people want to see him as a, as a radical. 
while he insisted on the importance of modern music, of the newness of music, that music should always say something new in a new way, all of this was predicated on Bach and Mozart. He called himself a student of Mozart, at, you know, at the same time that people were saying, oh, this terrible demonic man is tearing down the Austro-Germanic tradition. And he wrote theory, uh, tonal harmony textbooks. He taught his students using Bach and Handel and, and Mozart. Schoenberg's work brought scandal to Vienna's music community. The scandal concert of March 31, 1913 was part of the Vienna Concert Society conducted by Arnold Schoenberg in the Great Hall of the Music Verein. The audience, shocked by the atonality and experimentalism of the Second Viennese School, began rioting. Today, the music wouldn't sound all that dramatic, as all of the pieces in the scandal concert, Webern's Six Pieces for Orchestra, Zemlinsky's Maternlink Songs, Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony No. 1, Berg's Altenberg Lieder, have become standards of early 20th century repertoire. time, however, the music was considered quite inflammatory. As the music progressed, pro and anti-Schoenberg patrons began yelling, throwing things, and eventually physically fighting with each other. The police were called in, and the concert was shut down before the final piece, Mahler's Kindertotenlieder, could be played. Various members of the audience, including prominent musicians, were called into court on charges of rioting. Schoenberg became known as the greatest of modernist musical troublemakers. The next day, Schoenberg went back to Berlin and sent a telegram to Vienna. He was still agitated about the concert. He wrote, I don't understand how it has not occurred to anyone yet that such noise-making was a breach of the law. A ticket to a concert only extends the right to hear the concert, not to disrupt the proceedings. Unfortunately, concerts in Vienna are not set up as artistic affairs. They are political ones. People come to a concert with their opinions already firmly in place. In my view, that undermines the success. Although the scandal spoiled my mood a little, it otherwise left me cold, since my self-preservation instinct long ago obliged me to immunize myself against audiences' reactions. I think he knew that he was asking a lot of audiences. What he expected or what he hoped for was that people would listen to his music with an ear to this continuity with the past that he understood the music to have and that both he and uh, his student, Alban Berg, they both talked about and wrote about the fact that the only thing that was really difficult about this music was the harmony that it was, it was chromatic, it was very chromatic, even though, you know, you could find examples of chromatic harmony, very chromatic harmony, going back as far as Bach, but certainly like in Liszt and Wagner and stuff like that, 
So it wasn't that wasn't that hard to listen to. But in terms of things like building themes and counterpoint and all of that stuff, that was all there. So he he may have been a little bit optimistic about how how people would would be able to listen to the music, but I think he always held out hope that he would have an audience. He's often portrayed as this kind of arch modernist who just sort of scorned the scorned the public, you know, and and just thought that people didn't, you know, weren't sufficiently evolved to to hear the music. And and I think that's partly true, but he also he also imagined a a time maybe that when people would would listen to and would understand his music and would understand what he was doing. With this concert, the musical landscape moved into a perhaps false dichotomy of music, music that is popular with the audience versus music artists want to create that may not be popular. The audience in this case was comprised of rich, powerful people that promised a liberal and tolerant society. However, they were not delivering on this promise. Many were still stricken with poverty or marginalized for being gay, poor, or Jewish. The tension of the avant-garde versus the bourgeoisie was born. The idea that you don't have to appease the bourgeoisie in order for you to be allowed to do your art and your passion. The avant-garde artists and followers of Schoenberg were known as truth seekers that called out the powers that be. In an anti-Semitic society, many truth seekers were Jewish. Art evolved a critical look at society. Avant-garde had to differentiate itself from the pluralism of the bourgeoisie culture. It is easy to see how his music may have caused scandal and strife in mainstream society after you look at the way the ear takes in sound. The physics of how sound affects the body and mind may help explain the scandal and strife in concertgoers. Helmholst on the sensations of tone explains that certain intervals will attack nerve endings while others have a more calming effect. The semitone, or the space between two adjacent keys on a piano, will create rapid beats that distress the ear. The signal will reach the inner ear, fire rapidly to the auditory cortex, and cause the perception of a rough single pitch. This roughness is created with a major 7th and minor ninth, the exact interval Schoenberg emphasizes in his atonal music. Listeners at the live performance experience this new sound together at the same time. The immediacy left little room for reflection on the sound and the crowd became one mind, one mind that raised heckles, threw fruit, and yelled at the performers. According to Behind the Lines, Schoenberg was caught up in the war fever. At the start of World War I, he saw himself continuing the legacy of German composers of previous generations. He believed in the superiority of German music over French, which was part of the larger Franco-Prussian cultural divide historically. He compared the attack that modernism was making on bourgeoisie values with the war being waged against France. In an article called Four First World War Composers, Telegraph said that Schoenberg saw the war as an opportunity to overthrow what he regarded as the bourgeoisie decadence of French music. The German military assault would also be a symbolic attack on the mediocre kitschiness of the likes of the French composer Ravel. Britain and France, Europe's dominant 19th century military and cultural powers, 
saw the war as necessary for reinforcing the status quo, while Germany viewed it as an opportunity for purging Europe of all political stagnancy. Some say that World War I sped up Schoenberg's creative process of discovering his 12-tone serial system. Harriet Harding wrote that Germany and Austria, after being defeated in the war, were in a state of flux. It could be seen that Schoenberg's largely logical, strict new harmonic innovation was searching for stability in an unpredictable social atmosphere. Near the end of July 1921, Schoenberg told a people that he discovered something that he thought would solidify the exemplary status of German music for the next 100 years. That something was a method of composition with 12 tones related only to one another. Schoenberg had just begun working on his piano suite, Opus 25, the first 12-tone piece. In the 12-tone method, each composition is formed from a special row or series of 12 different tones. That row may be played in its original form, inverted, or played upside down, played backward, or played backward and inverted. It may also be transposed up or down to any pitch level. For the rest of his life, Schoenberg continued to use the 12-tone method. You know, if, if not offensive, it's, it can be off-putting in some ways because it, um, it suggests a, a kind of music that is overly cerebral or mathematical, even though it isn't really. Uh, and it's only, you know, 12-tone music is only sort of turned into math by by the boulez and the, the serialists, the American serialists like Milton Babbitt and people like that, who are, who are mathematicians as well, and who, who see, you know, to be fair, they see potential in the 12-tone system to um, explore other parameters and, and invent new forms and that kind of thing. But I don't know that it's fair to think about Schoenberg as a, as a, a cerebral mathematical composer. I think of him as very much a very emotional, intuitive certainly a holdover of, of the late, late Romanticism. After World War I, Schoenberg's music won increasing acclaim, although his invention of the 12-tone method aroused considerable opposition. In 1925, he was invited to direct the master class in musical composition at the Prussian Academy of Arts in Berlin. It seemed that Schoenberg had reached the peak of his career and his teaching was well received. The rise of National Socialism in Germany in 1933 led to the extermination of Jewish influence in all spheres of German cultural life. The Nazis denounced atonality, they called it musical Bolshevism, and at the time it was the accepted outlook in Germany. That year Schoenberg was forced to flee his native Europe due to Nazi terror. He immigrated to the United States via Paris. He taught briefly at Boston's Malkin Conservatory before moving to Los Angeles for health reasons in 1934 where he taught at both USC and UCLA. There, Schoenberg was able to influence composers like John Cage and Morton Feldman. Schoenberg's modern music became the dominant influence in new music. Schoenberg's later works harken back to his Jewish roots. He composed music to a set of modern psalms. Israel became a state in 1948, at a time when Schoenberg's concluding works showed some of the brevity and fierceness of his first atonal pieces. As Schoenberg made a permanent residence in the U.S., 
Many of his friends, pupils, and colleagues wanted him to know how the European music scene was unfolding since he'd left. Darmstadt, for example, was home to many students like Olivier Messiaen that were incorporating Schoenbergian serialism into their work. As Christopher Fox calls, the post-Schoenbergian composition has become the lingua franca of new music, studied and performed all over the world. It's less Schoenberg's legacy that carries over, you know, after his death in 1951 than Webern's, in a way. Um, Webern is adopted by, um, by Boulez and Stockhausen and the, the Darmstadt School, this new generation of, you know, 20-something composers who are, not only are they responding to the Second World War and the, the problem of carrying on with, uh, you know, with German music when you have this, uh, this legacy of, uh, of German culture, how do you stay wedded to a culture that, that also gave rise to National Socialism and the Holocaust? The counterpoint and the, the construction of themes and the manipulation of motives and all of that stuff, it's happening within a, a chromatic soundscape. Otherwise, it's, it's, uh, it's music and it's very... It's very, it's, it does the things that, that music has always, that great music has always wanted to do. It wants to express and connect and, uh, and move people and make people think. And in that way, it's, it's, it's no different from anything else in the, in the canon that people, that people can fall in love with and return to again and again. Today, Schoenberg's music may not sound so different. It has permeated so many aspects of modern life from bebop jazz to minimalism and even horror movie soundtracks. That eerie atonality lends itself well to creepy shadows and dark alleys. The dread Schoenberg's music brought on the music community in the early 20th century no longer carries as much weight, but at the time it threatened to and did change the way music was made. As he described his own, uh, the end of his life, his own his own life that his his critics and detractors had effectively thrown him into an ocean of boiling water. And uh, he said, you know, what could I do? Uh, my, maybe my only virtue is that I never gave up. What could I do but swim? Arnold Schoenberg died on the 13th of July, 1951. His development of the 12-tone series in the field of music is arguably one of the greatest developments of the 20th century. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams, engineered by Benfis. With special thanks to Professor Alex Carpenter, Drew Smith, and Megan Avery. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.